everyone. Good morning, church. Uh, we are back in the book of Luke this morning. How about that? Yep. We are rocking and rolling. We took a few weeks off to do some great things with the angels in Africa. And then last week, our State of the Church, uh, not State of the Church, or Vision Sunday, we used to call it State of the Church. Uh, but here's the deal. If you were not here last week, I cannot put in any stronger words the need for you to go to our website and watch the state of the church. Oops, I keep saying it. I'm old school. I'm old school. Uh, old and old school. But um, to watch Vision, the Vision Sunday message that Monty and I did together. It's so crucial for us moving forward in this next ministry year so make sure you text yourself, make a reminder, write a note on your Palm Pilot here. But I, I really, we really want to ask you to take the time uh, to do that. So we'll all be on the same page to be all in. So uh, matter of fact, speaking of all in, this passage this morning has that ring to it. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapters or chapter nine, starting with this verse 51. This morning, we start a new series in the book of Luke called The Road Less Traveled. And we do that because Luke 951 through 1927, most scholars call that, 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 that those 10 chapters there, the travel narrative. And the reason is it recounts Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and the cross. One writer that I read this week said, its contents form a literary masterpiece on discipleship that is acutely relevant at any time in the life and history of the church for people of any age, gender, social standing, and race. And I would add to that in a very down-to-earth but very challenging way this travel narrative, those 10 chapters, tells you and I what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It defines for us, it puts flesh on the bone of what it looks like to follow Christ. What it means for us as flawed humans in a sick, sin-sick world. And if we embrace this truth, we will certainly travel a road that is less traveled a road that very few take. Matthew 7, Jesus, uh, in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus put it this way. He said, broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Make no mistake, this road less travel is filled with incredible difficulty, but with incredible delight and purpose and meaning and joy. It is worth every difficulty it brings. Our travel narrative also marks what we call the great divide in the book of Luke. Now, speaking of divides, you and I are very familiar with the divide called the Continental Divide, are we not? It starts from Alaska, it runs down through the Rocky Mountains of Canada, through the U.S., through the deserts of the American Southwest, all the way down through Mexico and South America, then, then ends there in the Atlantic Ocean. This is an imaginary line 
but its purpose is to indicate where the rainwater and rivers will drain. Will they drain westward toward the Pacific or eastward toward the Atlantic? It is so important to geologists as they do their work. We have another important line, and it is between Luke 9.50 and Luke 9.51. It's an imaginary line, but it's profoundly important to the gospel of Luke. It is the hinge verse in the gospel of Luke. Luke 9.51, and here's what that verse we'll see this morning does. It signals that this trip to Jerusalem by Jesus is different than any other trip he ever took to Jerusalem. It is the beginning of his march to the capital to institute a revolution, to initiate the kingdom of God. And we'll see this morning, nobody or anything will stop him from doing so. And so I would encourage you, I actually put a smiley face in my Bible. At one time I had a cross right there. This is the benefit of having a real Bible. You can actually write in it. So I would put a cross right there. What a great reminder to us. So let me read for us uh, this morning our text, starting in Luke 9, 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, there's our hinge verse, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury your own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another man, a third man said, I will follow you, Lord. But, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Jesus' journey, I need to wear my glasses this morning, or I ain't going to be able to tell you what I got to say. Jesus' journey is to go to the cross and die. For Jesus to set his face toward Jerusalem meant something very different to him than it meant for his disciples. All we have to do is go back just a few verses in Luke 9, 46, where we see them arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Their vision of this trip to Jerusalem, of him setting his face to Jerusalem, was about greatness and about power and about human glory. But Jesus had another vision in his head of what his final trip would look like. And the vision was this. 
It was clear because everything that had ever been written about him in the Old Testament of what would take place in this last trip to Jerusalem would finally come true. When Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he set his face to die, to be mocked, to be scourged, to be crucified. Prophet Isaiah, 730 years before this, predicted this in Isaiah 50. It reads like this, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and he, he who vindicates me is near. 10 months before his death, Jesus set his jaw and fixed his eyes on the cross and the resurrection. So from this point on, in these 10 chapters, every story he told, every point he made, every truth he encouraged with, every miracle he performed, every conversation he engaged in, had the cross pulsating in the back of his mind in the center of his heart. He set his face like flint. Now, I want us to take a minute to remember, to put ourselves in the feet of Jesus, if we would. Jesus was human like us. He had a nature like ours. He felt pain and withdrew from it when he felt it. He, I'm sure, would have enjoyed marriage and children and grandchildren he would enjoy maybe a long life like most of us dream about to be well thought of in our communities. He had a mother and brothers and sisters and deep relationships from his 30 odd years on earth. He loved the mountains, we know. So to turn his back on all of this and set his face toward a cruel death for people like you and I Deeply rebellious, very sinful, certainly could not be easy. But we know the scripture says, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And God the Father had planned it all. Did you notice the little phrase in Isaiah 50? He who vindicates me is near. He knew his father had planned it and would take care of him. Charles Swindoll puts it this way, there is a crown at the end, but there is a cross on the way. That is not only true for Jesus, that is true for you and I. We'll see that this morning as we continue to unpack this text. In verses 52 through 56, Jesus was traveling from the region of Galilee. And this is sort of how the geographical layout of, of Israel uh, uh, looked like. You had Galilee in the north, you have Samaria in the middle, and you have Judea uh, uh, in the south. And sort of like you have Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And so that's the layout. So they're coming down from Galilee. And to get there, they had to go through the region of Samaria. Now, there was no love loss between the Samaritans and the Jews. And I don't have time to get into all the reasons, but the reasons are many. 
The reasons are long. They hated each other. And so Jesus sends some folks ahead to make arrangements for them to stay in Samaria as they travel southward toward Judea where Jerusalem is located. And on the way, the text tells us they were refused. They refused to allow Jesus and his men to stay in this Samaritan village. And so Luke gives us a little, a little uh, pre-look here that Jesus is already being rejected. Now, if you notice in our text, this didn't really sit well with James and John. And you may or may not know that their nicknames were Sons of Thunder. And we see right here why. <laughs> they wanted to go straight up Old Testament of this on this Samaritan village. They wanted to go old school. They wanted to go back and say, let's do a little Old Testament theology on them. They, they particularly wanted to go back to maybe 2 Kings chapter 1 when King Isaiah, a Samaritan king, sent men to arrest the project prophet Elijah. And when they got there to arrest Elijah, Elijah called down fire and fried like fried chicken to a crisp. He smoked them. Two sets of 50 men or 50 soldiers, two sets of them and their captains. So a little payback time maybe. Now I want you to know in full transparent confession we mentioned last week that one of our values is what you see and what is what you get. So I'm going to tell you, when I read that text, there's, there's something in me that rises up. And, it, and I know this for sure, 100%, I would have said the same thing. Oh, they want to play that way? Lord, you give me, you just give me the nod and I will and blow them up. But it feels so good sometimes. Ain't nothing stopping us. Let the fire rain down and sing a song about it. That would be me. And I, like James and John, probably would think that Jesus would be pleased with their passion, with their zeal to protect him. But we see in the text that Jesus rebuked them. Jesus is letting them know this is not the time for judgment. Oh, it's going to come. At my second coming, it will come, but don't get distracted with the noise. Keep moving. We are on mission. I have set my face to Jerusalem for one purpose. I think the point for this first few verses is this. A mistaken view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead to a mistaken view of what discipleship actually is or isn't. A mistaken view of what it means to follow Jesus because Jesus had not come to set up this earthly rule. So if James and John bring fire rain down, it would have made sense if Jesus had come to set up this earthly rule. Fire rain would have made sense for them to, to, to do this in light of their sort of final march into the city of Jerusalem to take over. But Jesus had come to save, not judge. So in light of a radical different form 
of discipleship is needed in light of that. What we all must learn is when Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to die, he was not only taking our place on the cross. He was not only a substitute for us, although he was that, all of that, but he was actually also setting for us a way of life, a pattern, pattern for you and I to live. He is both our substitute and our way of life. He is both our substitute and our pattern for how you and I live. For example, he dies to self, we what? Die to self. He suffers for the gospel, we what? There you go. He's rejected, we are rejected when we live all in for Christ. He loves the unlovable, us, so we love the unlovable. He gives up treasures in heaven to save us, and we give up treasures on earth to be in the mission of helping to save others. See, he's the substitute, but he's also our way of life. That's discipleship that he's defining in these first few verses. So we'll put it this way. Jesus' journey is really our journey. There's no different. That's what these two set of verses tell us this morning. Jesus has a journey. He's set his face. He's going to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is my journey to die for the sins of mankind. So his journey is our journey. And our journey is to what? To die. To die to self and take up our cross and follow him. In verses 57 through 62, here's what Jesus does. He tangibly, publicly <laughs> corrects James and John's misconception about the glories of discipleship by engaging and interacting with three potential disciples. Now, let me just be as honest with you as I can. As I go through these three men who are potential disciples that Jesus engages with, and at every point they say they want to follow Jesus, or one guy, Jesus, said, follow me. Jesus is putting up barriers to them. It is a lot harder. Jesus makes it a lot harder to follow him than typically you and I do for people to follow him. In light of that, if you just listen to this sermon this morning and you don't go back and personally internalize and wrestle with which one of these three people or of me, this sermon probably won't do very much good for you in changing how you actually live as a disciple and follower of Jesus. That's just free, okay? So, the first man. The first man, Jesus says, you need to live as a stranger in this world. As they continue their travel to Jerusalem, there's actually more people with them than just the 12. Just in the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, we see about 70 folks, so 70 plus 12, 80, 82, 85, everybody you want to add it up, but there's a, there's a group there. And they're made up of both fans and followers and everything in between. So the first man says in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. 
And then I'm sure, the text doesn't tell us, but I'm sure he starts singing the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Did you see that in the Greek? It's right there. You know, this man, as I read this, he's got to be deeply spiritual. Wherever you go, Lord, I'm there. Wherever you go, Lord, I'm your man. I got your back, Big J. I'm with you. I'm all in. I'll follow you wherever you go. Matthew 18 tells us this man is a scribe. And in Matthew 18, version of this narrative, this interaction with this man, he uses the teacher the word teacher, to address Jesus. This guy's a student. This guy loves spiritual things, and he thinks, this is the best teacher I've ever had. I'd love to be a GA for him. If we had not read the next verse, which we're, we have read, we might think Jesus would have told old Peter, maybe, Peter, go get the membership book. Sign him up now while the iron is hot. Let's strike. We got another, another one joining the church. But Jesus actually puts up a barrier to really see if this guy is a follower or a fan. To, to as Dr. Bach said in the quote up top, to just see if this man has, has interest in Jesus or commitment to Jesus. Verse 58, we know Jesus has a way of sort of, when he interacts with people, he has a way of, of going beneath our words to discover our heart and motive. Jesus has ability to see what you really meant, what's really going on inside. And so Jesus responds to him, this I will follow you wherever you go. He responds to him with this, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But I have nowhere to lay my head. Now, when I read a text like that, I simple-minded, I just think of a simple question. Why would Jesus tell a guy he has no place to lay his head? And I think the answer is not complex. It's simple. He expects, he expects his disciples to be like him. That being a disciple of Jesus is not about living without a home, per se, although it may be. There have been many believers who have suffered for the sake of the gospel without a home. So it may be, but most of the time it's not. But Jesus is saying to this man, it is costly. It is a sacrifice. It is not comfortable. It is not about mine and your comfort. And folks, if there's an idol in our culture and in our churches that maybe is preeminent to any other idol that you and I might chase after, it is human comfort. And I speak for me first and foremost. And Monty, when he came back from his sabbatical, that's one of the number one things that God convicted him over. So we stand before you. As idol chasers of comfort, therefore knowing you do the same. 
Following Jesus means you live as a stranger in this world, which means you do not cling tightly to the, tightly to the things in this world. There's an old spiritual that says the world is not... Sorry. Some of you were going to sleep, but you're not asleep anymore. The old spiritual says the world is not my home, just passing through. Jesus is saying to this man, are you sure you are ready for that kind of life? Jesus is saying, are you going to follow me when things are rough? Are you going to follow me when you don't know where I'll sleep, therefore you don't know where you'll sleep? Jesus is saying animals have a more comfortable life than I do. Jesus wants his disciples to have an alternative vision or alternate vision for their life that is in opposition to personal comfort. How might this work? It is a dream of living radical for the kingdom of God to take the comfort of your life, which we have, most of us, your home, the comforter, comfort of your portfolio, your income, your free evenings, your job, et cetera, et cetera, everything in your life that brings comfort and free yourself from the shackles of our self-serving consumer-driven culture to follow hard after him. And Jesus would say, because there's a battle to be won, a race to be run, won and run, and a work to be done. Now, my oldest son, I thought about this. I thought my oldest son, Josh, was getting recruited to play football at the Naval Academy. And we, when, we, when we went up there on a visit, they showed us all the pomp and glorious beauty of the Naval Academy. The chapel, they knew I was a pastor. They took us in showed us the chapel with the incredible stained glass windows. I mean, everything we saw was breathtaking, if you've ever been there. Even their football practice fields was right next to the bay with magnificent sailboats out as the sun set. That looked different than East Carolina practice fields. It's half swamp where we <laughs> were in eastern North Carolina. Josh would tell you now that the Naval Academy was a great place to be from, but it was a terrible place to be at. They didn't tell him at 6.30 every morning. For four years, seven mornings a week, you would be needed standing in your uniform to a T. You would be judged how your uniform worked, saluting your commanders. And I could go on and on and on. The Naval Academy, they meant well, but they weren't honest recruiters. Jesus is an honest recruiter. He wants us to know up front what we are signing up for. That's man number one. Man number two, <clears throat> to live as to make Jesus the supreme priority of our lives Verse 59 and 60. So here's what happens. Jesus initiates by saying to this man, follow me. 
But the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This seems reasonable, doesn't it? His daddy is dead. And then once I get my daddy in the ground and give mom a little comfort, I'll come follow you. Jesus' response to him, let me just put on a straight face. Let the dead bury the dead. That seems pretty cold. Jesus not playing around. That seems insensitive, though. This man has lost his father, we seem to think. And the Jewish law says you have to be buried nearly immediately. It's urgent because they didn't have refrigeration in the day. But what we need to understand this morning is this man's daddy ain't dead. The second man heard the first man say that he might not know where he's going to sleep at night. So the second man says, I know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm going home. I'm going home until my daddy does die. And when he dies, I'll get his inheritance. And once I get my financial situation, financial situation retirement set up, I'll, I'll check back in with you. I'll text you. Let me know where you are and I'll come follow you. Because it was very common. The, the tradition in the Middle East was that you didn't leave home until your daddy actually died. Dr. Daryl Bach, the Jewish or the Luke expert, put it this way. It is unlikely that a man with a dead father awaiting burial would not be out traveling, would not be out traveling about town and those preparing a body for burial were unclean for a week and would not be out in public. So he's saying, scholars are saying, this man's daddy really isn't dead. And Jesus says, let the dead therefore bury the dead. Let the spiritual dead be about the business of the physical dead. And you, the spiritually alive, be about my kingdom work. This man wants to postpone following Jesus because of the security of home and family. And Jesus bluntly says, no. Jesus says, you making financial security and your family a priority over following me is not biblical discipleship. They are good things, but they are not great things. And I am. Following me is a great thing. Now, does Jesus want you to love your family? Answer is what? Does Jesus want you to provide for your family? Yes. Does Jesus want your family and your money and your stuff and your possessions to be a higher priority than him? See, this is the part we know intellectually here. We've been students. This is the part that we have to wrestle with to make sure we're living out what we actually know. Jesus is saying, when I am the supreme priority of your life, when I come before your spouse and your kids and your stuff, you will ultimately love your spouse and kids more and will find great delight in using your stuff for my kingdom. You will ultimately be the spouse and parent your kids need and your security will be found in me. Your father who owns every cattle on every hill. 
Bottom line is, man number two, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches has choked out this man's ability to make Christ supreme in his life. Man number three. To that man, Jesus says, you need to live a single-minded life, verse 61 and 62. The third man says, Jesus, I'll follow you, Lord, but, here's that but again, <laughs> it's a dangerous word. When Jesus says, follow me, and we says, I will, but, we're probably not in good shape, but let me go home and say goodbye to dad and mom. Let me go home and say goodbye to John and Sam and Susie and my brothers and sisters and my cousin Bubba and Joe, Uncle Joe. See what's going on here? And Jesus' response to him is no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is digging beneath the words this man actually speaks. Jesus knows this man is double-minded. Jesus knows this man is saying with his mouth, like you just said a while ago when you said the word N-O, no. He's saying with his mouth, I'll follow you. But in his heart, he is saying, what did I just do? He wants to keep his options open. He wants to live straddling the fence. We've heard that. He wants one foot with Jesus. And he wants the other foot in the world. Jesus is saying to him, you can't have it both ways, big fella. You can't have me and the worldly system that hates me. You can't be for me on Sundays and do your own thing Monday through Saturday. No way, no how. And that's the Christianity that I grew up with. Church every Sunday and a mess through the week. Because if you're plowing a field, Jesus said, and you're looking back while you plow, you're going to mess up the row. And if you mess up the row, you're going to mess up the fields. And if you mess up the field, you're going to mess up the crop. And if you mess up the crop, you're going to mess up the very thing that's supposed to provide for you and the community. Therefore, you're going to destroy your life and those around you who depend on that crop being what it's supposed to be. And if you're looking back from where I saved you from while you're thinking about following me, Jesus is saying guaranteed, guaranteed if you're looking back you got one hand on the plow, and you're looking back to your old life. Jesus is saying, guarantee eventually one day you'll be like a dog that returns to your vomit, and you'll go back and not follow me. Jesus' reply is really a warning here. This is a warning since he sees great danger in this man's request. Your old life, Jesus is saying, Ain't got nothing for you spiritually. Your old friends ain't got nothing for you spiritually. Unless you're sharing the gospel with them. Your old sins that you were hooked into and may still be hooked into. Make a clean break. 
turn, repent, and lock on to me for a lifetime and watch me absolutely heal you from the inside out. Don't look back. I know you desire it. Whatever that it is, I know there were times that it felt good. Sin is like that. There are some examples of looker backers in the Bible, and it did not go well for any of them. The nation of Israel looked back after the Exodus. Remember what happened to Israel? God freed them from slavery. And he's leading them through the desert to the promised land. And they want to go back. They want to go back to the security and the comfort of Egypt. What happened? 40 years. Lot's wife looked back after leaving Sodom. turned into stone. To look back biblically is an indication that the heart has never left the attachment of the old and embraced the new. Those that look back, Daryl Box says, want to go back and will eventually do so. So as I wrap this up this morning, I want to say the issue of following hard after Jesus is not a laundry list of do's and don'ts. It is a heart issue that affects what you do and what you don't do in the future. It is asking this question, am I all in? The heart of a follower is that I have realized I'm so desperate, I am so tired of me, I'll willingly follow the one who loves me in spite of me. I want to say this too, Jesus also knows. He knows when we're playing with him. He knows when we're, we're just going through the motions. He knows when we, when we, when we want to be comforted and secured in the things we have. When we say, Lord, they're not mine, you do with them as you please. He knows. I'm going to tell you something as I close here. I thought back to this as I went through this text this morning. I am 19. I'm involved in every sin known to man. I am headed toward a massive, dark, destructive life. And I come to Christ. And I come home and sit on my couch speaking to my mom with tears running down my face as the biggest, at that point, the biggest spiritual idiot you ever seen in your life. I didn't know nothing, I didn't know nobody. I didn't know the Bible, and I was fresh out of the ditch. And I looked at my mom, and I said, Mama, you won't never have to worry about me again because I'm all in with Jesus. I ain't got nowhere else to go. My mama's spiritual response with was, we'll see how long that lasts. And I remember walking away. Man, there no more options on the table. I was so tired of me. Jesus brings not only me, not only these men, but you and I, you to those conclusions. 
Are you all in with Jesus? Take a minute to ask that question and ponder this beautiful text.